Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the latest developments in the coronavirus crisis, Boris Johnson's lockdown of Britain, his address to the nation, the continued concerns over why the UK isn't doing more testing, the NHS lack of PPE equipment, the freezing of the housing market, Matt Hancock's call for volunteer army, and of course, Rishi Sunak's third major economic package, this time to help the nation self-employed. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, science editor, Clive Cookson, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. As you know, coronavirus is disrupting all of our lives and the FT is no exception. This is our first podcast recorded entirely remotely. So hopefully you can stick with us, even if the quality is not always up to our usual standards. This week has been a very busy one for the coronavirus crisis and the government. It began with Boris Johnson delivering an address to the nation late on Monday evening. It was watched by over 27 million people, where the Prime Minister announced some unprecedented clampdowns on people's ability to leave their houses, shop and go about their daily lives. So let's begin with Boris Johnson's address to the nation last Monday evening, where the Prime Minister spoke to over 27 million people. Following extraordinary sights last weekend, where despite orders from the government, Britons went to parks, exercised outside and filled the shops. The government felt it had no other choice but to impose a lockdown, the kind of which we haven't seen in modern times. George Parker, what was the thinking in Downing Street behind that lockdown and why did they do it through an address to the nation? Well, there'd been a lot of pressure building up on Boris Johnson to announce these kind of draconian measures, essentially bringing Britain into line with what was being done in other European countries, including France, Italy and Spain. And there had been a lot of talk about doing this on the previous Friday. Boris Johnson resisted that. You know, he's a libertarian as a politician in his philosophy. He doesn't believe in having police out checking people's papers and telling people what to do. So instead of that, on the Friday, he announced the closure of bars, restaurants and clubs. But again, that didn't do enough because, as you say, Seb, it was a beautiful sunny day across most of the United Kingdom. People were out and about, not just taking exercise, but socialising in parks in quite large groups. And I think by Monday, the pressure had been building up to such an extent internally inside the government with people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and Michael Gove, the cabinet office minister, very keen to get on and take much more dramatic measures, but also from the health service as well which feared that it was about to be hit by a a wave of new admissions under coronavirus. And on Monday, Boris Johnson finally did act. There was a bit of a lost weekend there. But nevertheless, at eight o'clock on Monday evening, he came out and gave that big announcement that Britain was effectively shutting down. 
One of the things that I've been quite struck by is how successful that announcement has been. It has included some draconian police powers that they are able to stop people, detain people, fine them 30, 60, 120 quid if they don't go home. But ever since that announcement was made, my sense from my local North London neighbourhood is that people do seem to have actually listened to this. And the fact that all non-essential shops and pubs and restaurants have closed has helped. But generally, it seems that that message has got through where the others in the past maybe hadn't, George. I think that's true. I mean, Boris Johnson used a language deliberately meant to evoke wartime. You know, he said, you are all enlisted now. And I think that's engendered a sense of community spirit. And we'll talk about this maybe a bit later, but the fact that over 500,000 people have volunteered to help the health service, but also just the sense of peer pressure. So I don't think really people have changed the way they live their lives because of fears they might be given a £30 fine by the police. I think it's more the fact that there is a sense of national effort here and a sense you're doing the wrong thing and you'll get more than a dirty look from your neighbours if you are seen to be out breaking the rules. So, yes, the country has changed. I think Boris Johnson captured the mood very well. I thought it was one of his strongest performances in the crisis, actually, that statement to the nation, as you mentioned, said, watched by an extraordinary number of people on Monday. And Laura Hughes, there was obviously political pressure from Parliament on this, that Conservative MPs were pressuring Downing Street to move harder and faster. And so was the Labour Party as well. And it really felt it was the Prime Minister's instincts, as George was saying, this idea that he believes in liberty. He doesn't like to be unpopular, as we know. He doesn't like to restrict what people can do. But ultimately, it all just became too much. Yeah, I think... The the date that everything really changed was actually the 16th of March when this study came out from Imperial College. They have been advising the government and it basically suggested that the government's initial mitigation plan in its strategy set out at the very beginning, it would result in maybe a quarter of a million deaths in the UK. And I think it was at that point that people in the cabinet like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, realised that a lot more people were going to die, but more critically, that hospitals were going to buckle under the pressure and that they wouldn't be able to cope. So yes, there was a lot of political pressure from Conservative MPs. Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, has been really vocal on this. And also, of course, the Labour Party and the public just looking around the world and seeing other countries introducing tougher measures. But really, I think when we look back on this, it was this Imperial College study that made the politicians wake up and realise that if they carried on on the trajectory that we were going, hospitals and the NHS would not be able to cope and it would become really politically hard for Boris Johnson to explain why so many people were dying. And of course, we don't know what's going to happen down the line, but I, I really think that that was the moment the thinking really changed in Downing Street. Well, that segues us nicely into what I was going to ask Clive next. So, Clive, you've been all over these various models and scientific reports this week. I was wondering if you could just take us through all the various different bits of things that have been going on, because you've obviously got SAGE, the scientific advisory group that's influencing Downing Street's decisions. You've had these papers from Imperial this week. You've also had a different paper from Oxford, and they've all created very different ideas about what the government needs to do and where we're heading with the corona crisis. Just to start from the beginning, what are all the different things that have happened this week on the science front? Well, I think that just to pick up on what Laura said earlier on the 16th of March, what happened there with the scientific modelling and the consequences 
for the health service was the data from Italy. It turned out that the disease caused by this virus, COVID-19, causes a much higher proportion, at least twice as many patients who get symptoms having to go into intensive care, needing ventilators. And when that was fed into the model and passed on to Downing Street, I think that was one of the biggest issues. The Imperial College people are one of the world's great modelling groups. It has to be said that in some ways, they are producing the most dire projections. All these models are not forecasts, the modelers say. They're just scenarios of what might happen. And the imperial people are working on the assumption that the number of people who might have been infected by the virus but not shown symptoms is relatively small. Other modelers are feeding in different assumptions, like the Oxford group that you mentioned, that a far larger proportion of people have passed on the virus without showing symptoms or with such mild symptoms that no one's noticed. And without knowing that, without knowing the level of immunity in the population, the term herd immunity has been rather discredited in political discussion. But herd immunity does still mean something if lots and lots of people got the virus, didn't really know, but have picked up immunity. The question is, what is that proportion? And we really, really don't know. And how much, which of these studies are most influential in the government's thinking, Clive? Because Neil Henderson from the Imperial Group here appeared in a House of Commons Select Committee this week, where he gave probably some of the more optimistic views of this, where he was saying that we're going to hit the peak in three weeks of this, which I think was sooner than some of the suggestions from Downing Street that it could be in the middle of May, and said by that point as well that they felt that the NHS would be able to stay in capacity if the curve goes on the current basis, if I'm right. That's right. I think two to three weeks is perfectly reasonable from what I've been hearing, because this extreme social distancing that you and George were talking about earlier will have greatly reduced the rate of new infections. Now, given the incubation period, maybe five days, maybe a week, and then the time taken for symptoms to develop, maybe another week, it's completely plausible that the peak will be in two to three weeks' time. That's peak demand on the health service. Sadly, peak deaths will lag behind that because a lot of people will be ill for days, maybe weeks, and then die. And I should just make a comment on the statistics that are coming out. What really matters here when we follow the epidemic The only reliable thing is the number who've died, because we can be fairly sure that that is recorded accurately as being due to coronavirus. The total number of cases that people are looking at is almost completely meaningless, because so many people are not being tested because we don't have enough testing kits to do it. So the latest stats said 11,500 positive tests, but they're only testing people who are coming to hospital with symptoms or a few who have other critical roles. NHS England and Public Health England themselves say that there's a completely unknown number of people with mild symptoms self-isolating. 
Because, George, this is where the political pressure has really built on Boris Johnson this week about testing, because, as Clive said, it's absolutely critical to try and fight this thing, to know how many people have got it and contact tracing and all the rest of it. And the head of the World Health Organization has said over and over again, the way out of this is test, test, test. But consistently, the UK has lagged behind other European countries. You know, if you compare the fact Germany is testing 50,000 people a day, every day at these Downing Street press conferences, Boris Johnson and his ministers are asked, why are you not testing more people? And we still don't really seem to get a satisfactory answer to it. No, I think when the inquiries are held at the end of this crisis into what lessons can be learned, the first will be why on earth weren't we building up our testing capacity at a much earlier stage. And as you say, this question comes up time and time again at press conferences. Why aren't you doing this? And Boris Johnson comes up with this formula where he says, well, we were at 5,000 and we're hoping to move to 10,000 and then 25,000 and then 250,000. These are the antigen tests, of course, that measure whether someone's actually got the virus or not. But when? And there's no timescale ever given. And people will be asking why when Boris Johnson was spending a week at Chevening in February and why he didn't hold his first COBRA meeting on this crisis until the 2nd of March. Did we miss valuable weeks when this this testing capacity could have been built up? But as we were writing this week, and Clive was writing, there is another side to the testing argument, which is the antibodies tests. And the government has bought three and a half million of these tests. The only problem is yet we don't yet know whether they actually work. But if they do work, of course, they'll tell us whether someone's been exposed to the virus already. And that will allow the health service in particular to get frontline staff back into hospitals. Yes, Clive, this issue of antigen versus antibody tests again has come into the political spectrum with the idea of people being tested. Do they have the virus now or have they had it or not? You know, where are we at on that? Because the government seems to be placing a lot of its hope on the antibody tests, which we still don't know if are reliable and they're not much good if you have the virus at the moment. That's right. On the antigen tests to identify people who are actively infected. I think part of the problem that will come out afterwards from investigations, for example, being carried out by the Commons Science Committee, is that Public Health England tried to keep too much of a centralised hold on the process. And they weren't open enough to other contributions, both from private companies producing tests, which could have been assessed and evaluated, but also from other hospitals, university groups who are very, very keen to help. But Public Health England wanted to keep control of the process. Now, I'm no expert on that, but that's something I've been hearing a lot about. On the antibody test, which tells whether someone's immune system has responded to the virus, even if they were infected with no symptoms, they must be very carefully evaluated. And that process is taking place now in Oxford and elsewhere, because it would be disastrous if these tests gave either false positives or false negatives. I think that it's more complicated than people think. There was a slight feeling at, for example, the Commons Science Committee hearing this week, when suddenly the representative from Public Health England deflected all the criticism and questioning about the antigen testing, that that hasn't been ramped up, as George said, and suddenly pulled out antibody testing as a rabbit from the hat. Now, I hope it will be a rabbit 
and it will tell not only individuals whether they are safe to work, but also, just as importantly for the modelling, it will tell the level of immunity out in the population. And last thing on that, Clive, because again, at that select committee, they were saying these could be available within days, but then we've heard other reports saying it could be weeks as well, which again, it's a very confusing picture on whether people have got false hope with this too soon, perhaps. I think they have. And also the manufacturers of these antibody tests that are being evaluated and only now being revealed. And I think throughout this process, Public Health England, Department of Health and the government hasn't been as transparent as it might have been. Now, Laura Hughes, the other issue that's obviously dominated this week has been about how the health service is coping. And one of the consistent stories, as well as this issue of testing, has been PPE, personal protection equipment, and lots of reports saying the health service doesn't have enough PPE. It's not getting around as much as possible. And a lot of horrifying stories from frontline doctors and nurses saying they can't get it. You know, why is the government struggling on this particular issue? Well, this is a huge question for the government because we have known that this was coming for weeks. We are into the crisis and yet we know that our frontline NHS workers, social care workers, still don't have the protective equipment that they need. And their concern is that they might be infecting the vulnerable patients that they have a duty of care to treat. And The government keeps coming out and saying, well, look, we've got millions of masks have been sent out over the last few days. Millions more protective equipment is being put out there on the front line. But we know that the government are really desperate for all of this equipment. And we still don't really understand why there have been such enormous delays. When asked about this in press conferences, the chief medical officer and his colleagues, they point to a supply chain problem. And I think that's the root of this. It's not necessarily that there isn't enough out there. It's that there are issues with getting it all together and getting it into the hospitals. But the fact that the government's actually reached out to embassies and ambassadors around the world to ask them to try and help source protective equipment for RNHS workers, story that came out this week, it tells you how desperate we are. And back on the testing, again, NHS workers are not being tested. All of us will have friends and family who work in the NHS. And I've heard stories myself of colleagues and friends who work with really vulnerable cancer patients, for example, and yet they haven't had any equipment to wear when they've been treating them. And then it's emerged later that someone they might have been treated has been tested positive for coronavirus. But in the meantime, they've been walking around hospitals, potentially spreading it to others. It's a really serious situation. And I think all this chat of antibody testing, it's really distracted some sections of the media in a way from this much more pressing point, which is antigen tests for NHS workers on the front line right now. The one good bit of news we have had about the NHS, though, Laura, this week is about the Volunteers Army that Matt Hancock announced in the middle of this week and said the government wanted a quarter of a million people to come and help the NHS to deliver food and medicine to the 1.5 million people in self-isolation, to transport goods for the health service around. And if people can't leave home and don't have transport, simply phone up people who are in self-isolation and have a chat with them. And within 24 hours, the government had absolutely 
passed its target. And within two days, it had over 650,000 people had signed up to it, which is a very, very positive thing. And again, goes back to George's earlier point, there very much is a national spirit rallying amongst to try and defeat this thing. Oh, definitely. I mean, there are positive stories, of course, coming out of this unprecedented crisis. And the huge round of applause last night that rang out across the country is testimony to the fact that really everyone is aware of what NHS workers are doing and they want to play their part. But also, there will be a lot of people out there who won't be working and will have the time to go and volunteer. And that's a good point because, of course, the government have said that they'll pay up to 80% of people's salaries where they might have otherwise been laid off. So there will be a lot of people sat at home feeling either scared or helpless. And this is going to give a lot of the public something to do. And there has been an overwhelming response. And I think, again, when we look back at this, there will be horror stories, of course, but there will also be some positive stories that do come out and tales of of people really genuinely working together and realising the priorities of everything, really. And finally, George, we now need to land on the two big economic announcements at the end of this week. The first one is that the government has effectively frozen the housing market and said if you're not buying or selling a house that's already in train or moving, then don't. And this is a reflection of the fact that so many banks are cutting credit and not giving mortgages. And the second, of course, was Rishi Sunak's big economic package to help the self-employed. And this comes after the first package, which was to help businesses. The second package, which was to help employees. And this, this third one. So just take us through those two announcements and what you make of them. Well, on the housing market front, I mean, there's a practical problem, isn't there, of um, people going to view houses at a time when they're meant to be staying at home. So I think that was one thing. But as you say, the banks are extremely reluctant to lend at the moment. You know, it's like trying to catch a knife as the you know, jargon goes. You don't quite know what the price of any assets are at the moment, including houses. So I think we're going to see that housing market stop completely. But as you say, yeah, Rishi Sunak has been building up an escalating package of measures to support companies and employees and now the self-employed. At the latest count, we think it's come to about £60 billion over three months. Uh, That excludes the loan guarantees that the government's issuing to the tune of over £300 billion. So it's a huge package of measures, the most risky of which, from the Treasury's point of view, was the one announced on Thursday to help 3.8 million self-employed people this is a sort of very difficult group to target effectively. Income goes up and down. It's very difficult to know what anyone's income is from the start of the year to the end of the year. And in the end, the Treasury's just thrown a load of money at the self-employed with very few strings attached. The scheme alone is going to cost about £3 billion a month. And basically, it's a grant to the self-employed just to keep them going through this difficult period. But I thought Rishi Sunak slightly gave the game away when he said he thought it could end up costing tens of billions of pounds which suggests the government thinks this might have to be in place for much more than the three months that they've originally allocated for a lot of these schemes, including the scheme to support full-time employees as well. So the government is uh, at the moment getting lots of plaudits for the way it's handing out money in a sort of John McDonnell-style way. And Rishi Sunak's getting a lot of personal plaudits for the way he's handling this crisis. But as a chancellor, it's always a lot easier to hand out money than it is to start to reclaim the money at the end of the process when taxes will inevitably have to go up to meet the bill of this crisis. 
And we did see just a little tinge of what might be coming in the future when Rishi Sunak announced this from Downing Street. And again, he did it in a very competent, confident way that the package seemed to be a decent compromise. It obviously excludes those who earn over £50,000 a year because he said the average earnings of those people is £200,000 and the Treasury fears those people can probably take care of themselves. But there was this big question of the time delay. This money isn't going to come through until June. So that means a lot of self-employed people are going to have to claim universal credit and that will massively increase the unemployment rate in the UK. As you know, we saw figures in the US that show how drastic it's been there. But I thought the most striking thing, George, was this fact when he said that on the other side of this, the Treasury is finally going to level up the taxes paid by self-employed to match those employed. This is something Philip Hammond tried to do and Rishi Sunak looks like he's going to do that now. And I look forward to the inevitable backlash from the sun, the Conservative backbenches and the usual people who say, every time we approach us. But it does show once we do get through this crisis, there's going to be some really tough choices ahead about how we're going to pay for all this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the sting in the tail of the package for the self-employed. Basically, Rishi Sunak saying, look, you want us to treat you like you are an employed person. Well, fine, we're going to do that. But the price is you're going to have to face the fact that you're going to pay taxes like employed people in future. And as you say, I mean, the when the reckoning comes for this crisis, the bill will run into tens, maybe hundreds of billions of pounds. Of course, for a while, we can just leave that lying on the books as as debt and the debt servicing costs are very low, as we know, because interest rates are so low. But at some point, taxes are going to go up and a lot of shibboleths for the Conservative Party, whether it's fuel duty or the differential tax rates for self-employed people, white van man and all the rest of it, are going to have to be addressed. There are going to be some very difficult decisions to be taken. And there are people in the Treasury who know very well that while they're basking in the adoration of including people on the left of British politics who think that the government's erring on the side of generosity in dealing with this crisis, they know that there will be a moment when they're going to be doing some very tough stuff and the brickbats will be flying in their direction. And finally, finally, Law, I just want to come to you with the last bit of final breaking news we've had as we're recording this podcast that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, and Matt Hancock have both tested positive for having coronavirus. It's quite extraordinary sights to see the PM and the health sector being leading the response to this crisis. Now in self-isolation for seven days, we should say that they've both got mild symptoms. They're not too ill at the moment. But of course, people are going to look at this and think, are they still able to see us through this crisis when they're locked away in their homes and studies? Well, exactly. And whilst they might have mild symptoms now, there's no guarantee that they will continue in that state. Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is the number two to the PM. So if suddenly the Prime Minister is taken out of action, we will see Dominic Raab step in. But yeah, I mean, it really does highlight the fact that this is really spreading and that anyone can get it. It's going to be really hard for the PM, but they were insisting in a a lobby with the PM spokesman that he will be able to carry on as normal, that he can still do all his meetings just via video and telephone calls. He'll be in the flat above number 11 Downing Street and officials are going to have to leave food and work outside his door for him. But of course, he's still going to have to come into contact with some people working there. So they're saying he'll be two metres apart But, you know, it it really is one of the most extraordinary things I think that's happened. The fact you have the health secretary and the prime minister, who is, we understand, the first world leader to, to really get this, both 
being tested and diagnosed within 24 hours of each other. Indeed, and of course it does raise questions about other members of the cabinet and the government too, because some people like Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, and Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary, have been working in very close quarters in COBRA meetings to deal with the emergency response there. And at the time of recording on Friday, things are obviously moving very fast in this crisis. At this time, no one else in the cabinet is getting tested until they show symptoms. And in some ways, the PM's state of work is going to be much like the rest of us. You know, he's working in isolation from his home. It just happens to be that his home is above number 11 Downing Street, which is also his work. Yeah, I mean, ironically, the Prime Minister does work from home most of the time. So it will work for him to do that if he manages to stay in good health. And yeah, luckily, from the beginning of this week, cabinet meetings were moved on to Zoom and he has hopefully been seeing less people. A lot of attentions turn to the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Valance, the the latter, he has tweeted that he's still in good health and carrying on as normal following the procedures and the guidelines that the rest of us are. I think Chris Whitty is also the same. But again, that would be really, I think, quite a disheartening moment if you did see those two figures who we've all grown to know as these reassuring men that stand alongside the Prime Minister in these press conferences, if anything happened to them. But touch wood, it looks like those two are okay. But yeah, and it's just, it is a real indication of how many people are going to get this. And remember the Prime Minister who was talking just a couple of weeks ago about how he'd been to visit a hospital and had been shaking everybody's hand. This situation has just moved so, so fast and, and so quickly. But you know, in some ways it's inevitable given the job that he does and given the job that Matt Hancock does. It involves meeting and talking with a lot of people every day. Well, I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that the folks I've spoken to about this say the PM is continuing business as normal. And of course, it wouldn't be complete without a Churchill quote, with one ally of the Prime Minister saying that Churchill's motto during the war was always KBO, keep buggering on. And that's exactly what we're going to do. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to George, Clive and Laura for joining us remotely. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism on coronavirus, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Take care and stay safe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 